think I'm going to look like Madonna. I buy all the gear and then six months in, yeah, I just realise that I'm on the carpet in my front room looking like, you know, when a dog gets worms and it tries to scratch its farm, you know, the legs twitching. <laughs> that's, that's the reality of it. Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers. Here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. This week on the Real Work Podcast, my guest is Shopee Delano, who started her career as um, a fashion blogger a passionate fashion blogger. She um, really owned a, quite a large space of the internet when she was young. And that experience helped her to move into work and move around big companies in a way that, yeah, an old fossil like me can only envy, really. What You're laughing at me describing myself as a fossil. Yeah. You're well, not- I sometimes feel like that around Shopee. Did you see her eyes, you know... Her eyes were clear and alert, like Bambi. Yeah, I was, was going to my... say she's a bit like Bambi. She's so fresh. Look at my face. It's collapsing after lockdown. I mean, it's I not. wanted to switch the camera off. <laughs> and uh, look at my hair. It's like the Chuckle Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That was my favourite thing. <laughs> the bodrum So, Chopin has a a kind of self-confidence and nimble approach, which I can't help but admire. And the other thing is she sort of stands astride big companies. She works for big companies happily, but is also entrepreneurial. And normally, you know, I know that I'm only on one side. I can't work in big companies. And so I, I, you know, I find it interesting when people can move move around the world of work that way we've had a it was a really fun conversation and just like all our shows recently it starts off with some pretty puerile humor i don't think there's any swearing but there's some little bit of toilet humor thrown in probably and um it takes a slow and steady pace towards a um, a gritty denouement where she really delivers some pretty serious truth bombs about um, institutional racism and um, the downsides of the fashion industry. So enjoy listening. We enjoyed making this episode very much. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, we should be. This is a ser- this is a serious business podcast. Yeah, Welcome right. to the Real Work Podcast. Shopee Delano, it's um, very nice to have you here. Thank you for coming. No, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Shall I tell you why I was a little bit late and behind schedule today? Please do. Because instead of researching your career so that I could really add value to our listeners and inspire them and inform them, I was listening to a podcast of myself. Like a budgery bar kissing itself oh, no. in a mirror and then giving itself She's a gone. neck strain. <gasps> She's what gone. happened? She disappeared. She, she just like screw <laughs> you. Who is this fool? I'm not sticking around for these foolishness. Oh, she's back. What yeah. happened? It just kicked me out. We lost you. Yeah. I thought a- you, I thought you listened to my opener, my opening <laughs> gag. And you just laughed, but on the inside you were just thinking, what fool, I've forgotten what a fool this woman is. I'm not going to waste my time for that. Who was it, who, um, who's that famous person who did that the other day on the TV, the woman, um, Bianca Jackson off EastEnders? What, what um, did she do? Patsy Palmer, Patsy Palmer. Patsy actress. Palmer. She was being interviewed, she's written a book, she's in, she works, she lives in LA and, and has written a wellness book and she was on one of those really nasty ITV shows, you know, news things, really like yeah. Daily Mailish. And they asked her a Daily Mailish style question. Yeah. And she um, she did she that. She just said no. She did a show pin, just was like, oh, I'm just not even. <laughs> I'm done. I can't deal with that. I'm done. <laughs> I can't no, deal with that. Pay my Wi-Fi, pay my Wi-Fi. 
No. Okay, good. So um, what have you been doing for today? Before we introduce you, what, how's your day looking today? Yeah, You're looking, very fresh. I look fresh. I'm not scared. I think it's mm. because I'm sat in front of a window. I can't take any credit for that. Um, Top tip. Right, right, for, for Zoom meetings. Uh, my day's been good. It's been a mix of, I had some Zoom meetings. I've been editing some photos. I did a shoot for a friend of mine who runs a sustainable D2C jewellery brand. And she's rebranding at the moment. So I did a shoot for her and I've been editing those. A D2C what brand? Jewellery. Jewellery brand. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And were you shooting it? Because you're a photographer. We should, like, we should... We don't tend to go in for big, long sort of introductions, but yeah. because the re the reason I wanted you on the show is because I admire the fact that you can navigate big companies and also have an entrepreneurial spirit. I think this is quite unusual, this mix. Normally people are in one camp or the other, and you seem to be able to um, be happy, actually, and as well as um, do well, but you, you seem to be happy in both spaces. But with, with regard to photography, you're a photographer as well as working um, in the production side and having a back-end look, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, me getting into photography was a bit slapdash, like most of the other things in my career. Um, I worked with a lot of photographers. In the previous life, I was a blogger, so I did a lot of shoots, and I was just in visual environments a lot. And I always found myself slightly dissatisfied with the images that the photographers were producing and I was thinking it can't be that hard I might as well give it a crack <laughs> so yes I... <laughs> how hard can it be how hard can it be so um I got my credit card and I bought some equipment and I called myself a photographer and I started shooting um and it was all as slapdash as that um but but yeah it, I've been doing it for around a year or so mainly headshots a little bit of editorial but I enjoy it. I enjoy it. I get to use a different part of my brain than the part of my brain I use when I'm doing marketing work or desk work, which is, which is nice. It's a bold, it's a, it's a bold approach, which is one of the things that I like about you from when I first met you, because after all, a photographer by definition is someone who takes photographs. Right. So if you have a, if you own a camera and you can produce a photograph with it, you are a photographer. Precisely. Precisely. That's as much thought that has to go into it as, as required. <laughs> and then after that, if anyone else wants to disparage you or say, oh, well, your photographs haven't been purchased or you haven't done this, that's up to them. That's with them. Right, right. And I can't, I can't let myself be swayed by how it will potentially be perceived. Like for me, it's just a creative outlet. And if people want to pay me for that, amazing. If not, I'll do it for free. But um, if I have a camera, I'm a photographer. So now let's just take a little pause and let's observe. So on listeners on screen, I can see <laughs> Buckers' face and Showface face. And there's a similar there's a similar kind of dynamics like Luke Skywalker expression on uh, <laughs> Buckers' face as these Yoda-like utterances come out of young Showface's mouth. Because that that's good. That's good stuff, isn't it? Yeah. That's just like leave other people to worry about how they want to define me. I own a camera and I'm taking photographs. I'm a photographer. Yeah. Yeah. This is easy. Can, yeah. can I ask? Can I ask? What's editorial photography? Editorial. You said you do he headshots, but some editorial. Oh, editorial just means like um, a shot that has a bit more of creative a creative concept and a story behind it. So it could be right, for okay. a fashion brand, it could be for a magazine. Um, there's a bit more of a narrative behind it, whereas headshots are just- Props. Right, exactly. Props, Props location, makeup, uh, music, you know, there's a vibe. Whereas headshots, it's quite, yeah. it's quite flat, right? You just want to get a clean, yeah. bright image of- Vibeless. Of someone. <laughs> Vibeless, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly vibeless. <laughs> I don't think anywhere's vibeless if you're there. Oh, that's nice. I don't think anywhere's vibeless if you're there. I remember when we first Ooh. met in um Oh god, don't what it? happened? Was it I don't think it was Somewhere Shoreditch cool. House. It was some sort of maybe it was Shoreditch House. Or Soho House. It was probably some trendy members yeah. club where I'd been invited <laughs> to be a founding <laughs> member, probably, because I was relevant. <laughs> Because you are so relevant. I was probably ushered in. Yeah, there was probably no tables. And it was like that thing on Goodfellas when they go in the back entrance, the tables appear 
It was probably just like that. Was it like that? It was exactly like that. It was exactly like that. I thought so. <laughs> um, but I remember thinking you were just so, um, yeah, interesting and dynamic and interested. Like having a conversation with you was so much fun. And I thought, oh, this is a woman I want to be friends with. Ah, oh, well, that's great to hear. And the, in um, the, the curiosity about you was because of your sense of agency like there's quite a big age difference between you and I and I thank you for your kind words like about my energy levels and enthusiasm and I definitely experienced myself like that as you know someone who has a lot of freedom and has has cracked the code in a way on like learn how to be happy and how to be useful but I was a very late starter it really took me a while to get there so I'm quite fascinated with um women who crack that code for themselves younger and I and that's the story that I wanted to kind of that that's the part of your story that is the reason I would I really wanted you on the podcast do you remember when the first time I interviewed was in the wing and um so buckers this thing happened there was a panel of guests Chopay was one of my four panelists. I can't remember the subject we were talking about. There was, you know, the wing was incredible. The early days of the wing, so enormous room full of all kinds of women who were really engaged, really interesting women, all different. They were really engaged. And the questions, it was loosely work-based. And the questions came, one of the questions came from the floor. And it was along the lines of sort of, how did you manage to do that sort of so young? And Chopin's response was, I made a decision to take myself seriously. Wow. <laughs> and you just did it straight, like yeah. straight down the lens, just eyes straight down the lens. And we have this thing in real work when we say we're unapologetic women. You know, that's all we're yeah. kind of working towards. And yeah. you, you arrived at that destination a couple of decades before most of us. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, I, what, what, was your, what was your parenting like? What, what, your, what family did yeah, that come from them? Yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, a mix of things. My my parents were um, quite chilled parents as far as Nigerian parents go. Um, academia was naturally a big part of my upbringing because that's like an important, you know, my parents think that academia is important, like a lot of Nigerian parents. So I was quite disciplined on the academia front. Um, but I was quite an anxious and insecure teenager, um, or a very anxious and insecure teenager, to be honest. Really? Yeah, yes, really. I'm still quite, I still have some level of, of, of insecurity as an adult, but as a teenager, incredibly so. Um, it was mostly because I had acne. So, um, you know, being young and, you know, not liking your appearance, even though it sounds frivolous as an adult, when you're young, it really has an impact, right? Um, but outside of my appearance, the one thing that I always took solace in or felt confident about was the fact that I could work hard and that I could almost outwork everyone else. And that was the thing that often gave me confidence and propelled me. And, you know, when I thought about the spaces in which I felt most confident, it was often the spaces in which I was using knowledge. I was using my brain. I was using my intelligence. Um, and I remember going to university. So after secondary school, you go to university, you're in a new environment with new people. You can almost reinvent yourself. And I decided like, I'm going to be a more confident version of myself. No one knows me here. Like no one knows who I am. Um, And I just made a really active decision to kind of redefine how I was moving throughout the world. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts back then. So I was really into this super American self-development corner of the internet. So I was like a raging Tim Ferriss fan. I loved Chase Jarvis, all of these like four hour work week, (laughs) self-development, that self-development content. When you were a student. (laughs) Yeah, I was 19. (laughs) I was the most unlikely like listener of that stuff. I don't know how I found it, but I was very much propelled by that way of thinking, which is, um, about maximizing human potential, I guess. I was like, I can do anything. Like I can really do anything. And if I want to decide to be a more confident, less insecure version of myself, I can. And um, that's really just stuck with me ever since. This idea that if I decide to do something, it's important and worthy and um, 
worth doing because I said so, not because somebody else said so or somebody else validated my decision. Well, Buckers, let's hope that the Squadcast recording has caught that because that's just gold dust straight there, isn't it? <laughs> what you're describing, what you're describing is agency, isn't it? It's what now yeah. is called sort of age. You know, it's a bit yeah. of a catch, a bit of a catchphrase. And I certainly, yeah. you know, I'm fascinated because I certainly lacked it in those in those times which um, we can't, we um, affectionately refer to as the jacket potato years. <laughs> I um, I too experienced a um, a, a beard of acne. <laughs> sort of a long, yeah. Oh, it We've was just there. awful. And so even if you know. Another another teenager uh, could be gazing at me with a look of love, and I'd be just thinking, "Is he has one of my pimples burst?" No, is he staring at my? Spots? It's just I know, I yeah. know, and it just sounds so awful, but it's so it ruins it ruins everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's bizarre how something so insignificant can have such a permanent like take up so much permanent space in your mind in social situations, mm -hmm. wherever you were, I'd be conscious of my outer appearance. And I think maybe that's why I forced myself to over-index the other way. It's almost like a yeah. whiplash or like a, a coping mechanism because I was like that for such a long time. I now, there's nothing, I can think of, I can think of anything worse than reverting to being like that again. So even when I do, slip back which i do it's natural like i do as i mentioned i do have kind of insecurity yeah. i feel like it's burnt into my brain slightly um my active conscious voice is super loud and reminding me that you don't want to be that shopper you don't want to do that you know you can you can do whatever you want to do you have agency you know that me that self-talk is incredibly loud nowadays she sounds like a great person to have living in your head <laughs> Don't, don't you think? Like she can come over to my place if she needs a mini break. She can live in my head for the weekend. I can be your motivational, a little yeah. motivational person on your shoulder. <laughs> it's good. It's um, I have that same thing though. You know, I definitely changed. I changed that voice around through hard work, application. Uh, you know, I don't think there's one way of doing that. I think it's different for everyone. You know, there's yeah. lots of. You know, you were talking about your motivational podcast. I was actually sniggering because podcasts weren't invented when I was a student. And in fact, um, we wrote our essays by hand and gave them in, we wrote them by buyer and gave them in to put them into wire pigeonholes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's that, that, like Flint, Flintstones. <laughs> 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 we, got, we got marble tablets and we chipped our answers into no, the tablet. <laughs> and we got our Egyptian slaves to take them in. <laughs> and then you go for a celebratory jacket potato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we did so um yeah podcasts if only if only they had been invented but um i think that there's a lot of i think people are looking for one answer you know people tell us oh if you do pilates you know that that changes that if you do this but my experience i experimented with bags and bags of different things and i kind of patched together bits from bits that worked from different sort of schools of thought and came up with my own kind of way of living. And yeah, I don't think there's one answer, is there? It's just kind of growing up stuff and just stuff you reach for and you try and some stuff stays with you and then some stuff some stuff becomes too ominous, you know, two, two and a half hours Ashtanga yoga on your own every morning. Yeah. I tried it. <laughs> I've tried you it know, all. I, oh, I tried that, but after a while it's just like, oh man, I just don't think that leg's ever going to go any further. <laughs> that <laughs> I just think no I'm I think truly, it's just not yeah I've tried just, yeah tried it all yoga just, meditation you, everything I think like, I'm gonna look like Madonna I buy all the gear super and foods, then six yeah. months in yeah I just realized that I'm on the carpet in my front room looking like you know when a dog gets worms and it tries to scratch it's farming you know the legs twitching <laughs> that's that's the reality of it <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. Like it's it's never yeah. as glamorous as the screens make it out. Um, and there's there's no silver bullet. I think you're right. Like it's no. it's a mix of trial and error, and everybody should find what works for them. It kind of brings us back to um, this the kind of 
culture of quick fix wellness self-help mottos in the world of women you you were kind of on in the instagram before i'd even kind of really heard of it you were so you you're an influencer when before they said that you shouldn't be called that yeah right? yeah exactly i started blogging when i was 15 which was i don't know 2000 and i can't remember 10 years look ago the, look at Look at the measurement between Buckers's eyes and her eyebrows. That's her, how we gauge how impressed she is. <laughs> and they just shot up. The velocity. When you said you started your blog when you were 15, the velocity with which Buckers's eyebrows shot skyward. That was incredible. I know. I just give my eyelids whiplash. <laughs> they, just, they just launched upwards. What were you blogging about? Fashion? Was it fashion? Yeah, it, it was fashion. I used to come home. I remember I was so obsessed with blogging. And I used to run home every day after school. I used to walk to school, get changed out of my school uniform, put on some sort of outfit that I'd cobbled together from eBay and a fast fashion shop, most likely, and put a tripod up in my spare room and just do a little photo shoot. And then I'd spend the evening editing, replying to comments. This was the blog spot days. So all of the interaction would happen in the comment section. So you'd get like 70, 80 comments of people writing paragraphs about their days and like what they had bought. And they'd ask you questions and you'd reply. And yeah, I think I did it, did that intensely for about a year and a half before I changed, changed my routine a bit. I think I then went to uni, but um, it was, yeah, I grew up on the internet. Like I really, really did. And I feel like a lot of, a lot of the reasons why I am the way I am now is because I was so active in the comment section of my blog for, for those two, three formative years when I was a teenager. And did anyone ever say, in a, it sounds lovely. It sounds like an innocent time, you know, before enormous amounts of money were involved and, you know, systems and control and all that kind of stuff. It sounds quite an innocent time. It sounds quite creative. Incredibly innocent. And it was, it was small, right? So there was less scrutiny and there was less um, space for it to go wrong. Like it was just. I Did anyone say mean things? Did anyone say anything mean? I was actually. I mean, you'd get the random robots or spam people that would just, you know, say ridiculous things. But ninety nine point nine percent of my interactions were positive until I then went onto YouTube and then it, you started monetizing and then everything gets a bit bigger and more gnarly. But in the early days, it was so wholesome. Like it really was slightly utopian in the way that people would just share ideas and share outfits and support each other. I had a blogspot blog. You had a blogspot? What was your blogspot blog called? It's really pretentious. Go on. It's quite pretentious. <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> no, you have, you have to. Use that. I can't. I can't. Oh. <laughs> you have to. I don't know. I can't wait for this. I can't wait. Oh, God. The suspense. It was called Le Chien Anglais, the English dog. <laughs> Do you know why it's pretentious? Because I don't speak French. I think I had to look that up and check it. I've never you... been to a French lesson in my life and my dog's just a dog, he wasn't French. Did you blog about dogs? <laughs> it's fine. You were trying fine. to be chic. I think you were trying to, you were trying to give trying a, to be chic. a European. It was, um, it was, I was living in central London. I had a pug and uh, the blog was, I also was a fashion head and the blog was we used to um, go to various fashion shops and cafes and the ones that would admit me and my pug on equal terms, we used to write up. So, like, you know, like you can walk down Bond Street with a dog and if you yeah. look rich enough, you know, they'll give, you know, they'll stroke its tummy, give you, a, you know, sausage, anything. Yeah. And um, we, it was about that, about, it was basically about dog access to um cultural fashion and food establishments and so we'd write up all the different boutiques and things in, and take photographs of the pug um with a diamond necklace on in liberties or um sat at the table eating a you know cream cracker somewhere it was ridiculous it's ridiculous i saw a dog in john lewis the other day did you are they oh, allowed in there yeah, mm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the man had really posh shoes on. There oh, we yeah. go. It's all about the shoes. I tried to go into Harrods once. They didn't like it at all. 
They, um, oh, they don't like it at all. So we we sped up, and they've all got radio headsets, and they communicate with each other. And just like on Line of Duty or something, the dog's legs. You know, he's only his legs are only about ten centimeters long. So it's like you know, he's just a, like a footstool with legs going like the clappers. Like in the cartoon, I was going, come on. In we go. And uh, yeah, like Line of Duty or something, you know, they just appear and like block off your past all around. And then you look up and there's like a helicopter. So, I, <laughs> so they took me, they took me out. And um, I, you know, did the usual kind of middle-aged white woman thing. I'm so sorry, I didn't realise. <laughs> I did realise I was trying to infiltrate. And um, I, do you know what I did? I attempted to go into another entrance. I then put him in a Louis Vuitton bag and put a scarf over his head. Stop it. No, I did, I did. And I, and I nipped round to another entrance to get him in. And um, they'd all circulated my um, description and they intercepted me and um, said, we know the dog's in your bag. <laughs> And I said, no, it isn't. And then he stuck his head up, like, and then pushing his head down. It was like that. Yeah, so um, that was my blog. But, yeah, I didn't have 86 comments. I mean, that's the denouement of that story. Is, I don't remember getting a comment. I don't I think like I got were, a comment. You were a woman before your time. I feel like I was nowadays. Just say, I think you're ahead of your time. That That would... That would fly now. It would. A pug in diamonds. <laughs> like, welcome to 2020. You'd get your own reality TV show off of that. Blur. Truly. Truly. It's a good concept. 100%. <laughs> ITV2 would be all over that. I think we should pitch it. <laughs> You're probably the first kind of person who would know how to pitch something like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd put Don't you produce... think, Buckers? Yeah. Yeah, we all say, oh, we should pitch it. None of us know how to do that. <laughs> how to do that to get a show i bet you know how to do that yeah i feel i feel yeah. like I've, I've, I've got a few skills that could be utilized when it comes to pitching <laughs> pitching the pug concept we can make that happen <laughs> we can make that happen the um so the early blogging meant my understanding is that what happens is then you go into your professional life knowing how to do something with ease that all the grown-ups with the money and the power find very scary and confusing, right? <laughs> That's what happens, isn't it? You show up and you're like, yeah, I know how to do that. And they're like, you do? Wow, yeah, that's great. Come in. You're that person. Maybe, maybe. I, I don't think I would, I would necessarily view myself as that, but I think it definitely gave me a different perspective when I was entering the workplace because I didn't feel so green. Like, I had figured something out. I had become... Some, not an expert, but I'd become proficient at something that could be monetized before I actually entered the workplace. So my perspective was a bit different. You know, like I remember when I joined my first company, I tried to leave after four months because I didn't like it. And I was speaking to um, who was my manager then. And he was like, why are you leaving? I'm like, it's just, I just don't like it. It's not fun. I make money as a blogger and that's so much more fun and creative. And I just don't really know why I'm doing this. And he was so baffled and confused because most fresh graduates probably wouldn't. We're just desperate, yeah. Yeah, would just be holding on to the job for dear life. And I just had so much conviction that, I'll figure it out. I'll get another job or I'll do more blogging or I'll become a photographer. Who knows? But I had this sense of, um, I had an abundance mentality, I guess you would call it. I, yes. Yes. I had a, yeah, I felt like I can figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. And that's really something that's followed me even now. Like I've got a strong sense of I'll figure it out. I'm sure I can figure it out. That's a good place to be. I think so. It's just a bit of a less stressful place to be. I think it is. And because the and the more you do, the more you do figure stuff out. The more that really beds in that mentality. Precisely, it's a nice, it's a nice thing. Yeah. The, um, monetizing your blog—that was quite. Not many people were doing that then. Did was it on YouTube that you monetized it? Yeah, it was a mix of things. So YouTube monetized for me. I was able to monetize YouTube a little bit, but more so it was joining becoming an in-house content creator for a big uh online marketplace so essentially i had a branded instagram account and i would produce fashion content lifestyle content for them and essentially act as a marketing channel like a more personable marketing channel for them and that was my main route to monetization in the early days 
I only mention it because Real Work has a new YouTube channel. I love um, it. Yeah. I made a hilarious video that went live yesterday and we marketed it across all our different channels and it had 16 views and I watched it four times. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards, how many times did you watch it? 12? <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. Well, please do. Come on. Every click counts. <laughs> you have to start somewhere. You have to start somewhere. Oh, that's supportive. We are what starting there. What are you talking about? Luckily, it wasn't in French and it wasn't about pugs. It was um, just talking more about women and work. But yeah. um, I think, you know, we've done well on Instagram. So I feel like when I came on into onto Instagram, what I was talking about and how I was talking about it, it took quite, I had to pay attention quite hard to work out what people wanted and what I was comfortable doing. Like I, I did quite a few things that I just saw actually... I don't like that. I don't, they like that, but I don't like that. Or I like this, but they don't like that. So you kind of get, it takes a while, doesn't it, to feel all that stuff out and then you hit the sweet spot. So Instagram, I kind of done and I'd felt quite confident um, on that platform for quite a long time. Went onto YouTube, assumed I'd boss it. And um, yeah, nothing much happened yet. So um, I feel like then I saw all the very um, blah, blah, blah um, style on YouTube and I thought, well, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. That's not me. And so I think it's the same lesson of like learning to find a middle ground between what people are expecting to see, you know, and the and that sort of fast edit and the crazy people pulling faces and stuff. One, two, three, three things that, you know, finding a halfway house between that and, and what I can produce. I think we'll, we'll get there. And as a team, you know, we've kind of got our heads into it. And But yeah, having, it's a, it's a bit of a... Um, a little bit of an ego deflation, 16. I mean, back in the um, back in the blog spot years with 16 views, aren't we? Right in the wilderness. <laughs> right, right, right. But, exactly. you know, I tell people, when people... It's good, though. It's good to sort of be new at something and be rubbish at something. Because yeah. when, in real work, when we all kind of um, listen and share with each other, lots of people often say, I've done this, you know, I haven't got a result. And, um, you know, it's embarrassing or it's awkward. And I said, it's not awkward, no one's listening. So it's not like I right. embarrass myself because no one's watched it. So it can't yeah. be, it well, gone viral. So that's the so it doesn't matter. starting yeah. things, exactly. It's like, it's so low stakes to try things nowadays. Mostly yeah. you're scared of like uh, the audience in your mind. Like it's you that's overly judging or being too, uh, having super high expectations for someone who's just getting started. No one can see what you're doing. It's just your mum watching or listening or reading. So you're so right. Like it's not, um, there's nothing to worry about when it comes to trying new things, especially now. With this podcast, I think it's my sister listening, except she came for me and she stayed for Buckers. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> she listens to it when she runs and... Um, you know, you, she, she's really supportive, but I mean, I wouldn't really expect her to be this far into a series and still be listening. To be honest, you know, you know, she's busy, but yeah, she's an avid listener, and I don't think it's me. She's listening. <laughs> do you want? In fact, um, fuckers, do you want to say her name's Abby? Do you want to? And she's a keen runner like you. Don't make do you me want do to a shout out. I think you need to do a shout out. Fuckers used to work in radio, so she actually don't be shy about shout outs. You know about that. You know how they go. <laughs> Thank you for your support, Abby. <laughs> we need more enthusiasm keep, than that, keep, keep running. Keep running. Keep, keep getting those steps in. And yeah. Keep on listening. That's it. Strava miles. We'll be following each other on Strava soon and I'll be just cut out of the deal. <laughs> that's all happened. So, um, that... No, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> You're not embarrassed. The, um... <laughs> The business, was that Depop, that first company you went into? Um, no, so Depop was the first company I interned at. Yeah. Was it? How was it? Yeah, it was It was interesting. It was before Depop had really landed and become um, like such a big player in the social shopping space. But it was fun. Like for me, I think I was actually brought in because I was an influencer or because I was a creator. They were looking for someone who could... Um, 
grow their account, the account management side of things, to so bring on creators and manage their wardrobes um, so that we could attract their audiences onto the app. And it was fun. Like, it felt very cool. It was in East London. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Did you understand that, Buckers? I can tell that you didn't. Oh, sorry. Look, the, light, says the lights are on. No one's home. There's a bird for you. You see me she... glaze over. Are you deciding sorry. what you're having for your lunch? <laughs> Sorry, I, think, oh, I, think, I think that's that Zeke's leftover. So, um, tofu and sun-dried tomatoes. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. So um, just go back a step. You're brought yeah. on by Depop. So Depop is an yes. online platform where people sell low, mostly lower value um, secondhand clothes easily. It's less it's tech light compared to eBay. The company yes. brought you in to yes. encourage famous people to sell their stuff on there. Not quite to to help manage the famous people that were selling stuff on there. So a, a normal person who uses Depop manages the process themselves. They take the photos, they upload them, they package them and post them themselves. But for the higher profile individuals, Depop was testing managing the process for those people so all those individuals would have to do is send their clothes to depop and depop would shoot them post them reply to messages etc and they would just get paid at the end of it so i was yeah i was helping manage those accounts as well as launch their first events and um socials as well so it's funny you should mention that because just before we went on it <laughs> I was having a little look at some of the famous people who sell on Depop and the items that they sell. And Love it's it. a whole thing. There's a whole wor Google wormhole you can go down <laughs> with famous people selling. Basically, it's a way of going through people's famous people's knicker drawer and sort of getting <laughs> getting near to them on on the internet. Dita Von Teases is my favourite. What's she selling? Dita bras she's selling nipple tassels the crystal ones that she nice. was photographed in the champagne glass with love it so, the underwear you know the variety that young people wear when it goes between your bum cheeks at the back thongs yes yeah no Those. stop it Flair. you knew what a thong was <laughs> no but i mean the ones they're not just that's just it's not like a normal thong it's like a it's something special from Dita. Right. G-string, okay. It's something, yeah. I mean, none of this stuff is, it's not run of the mill. It's just, <laughs> but it is, I'm going to have to close it in case. How much is, how much are they? What, for the nipple tassels? The... How much is Dita Von Teese's thong? Okay, let me find it for you. Out of interest. Asking um, for a friend. It's um, $45. Is that it? It's not too bad. Mm. I wonder, because they're so famous and have so much money, why did why do they need to sell their stuff on Depop? For $45 and condition yeah. condition used. <laughs> does that does that That probably increases the value to be it probably yeah. that's what it probably does with her. She's got two thousand seven hundred oh there's your answer. Look, she's got seven thousand items sold. And a lot of them are higher value for her. It's like jewelry and stuff. So if she sold right. 7,000 items without lifting a finger, a lot of that stuff will have been gifted probably. I can't, I just said gifted. Exactly. That's a terrible word. I can't use it. So yeah, I think it's that. Yeah. $5,000 yeah, sure. like vintage gowns and stuff. So why did you leave Depop? Wouldn't, wouldn't that just, that sounds a fantastic job for a young person. Why did I leave Depop? Well, I think one, it was it was an internship, so I think it was probably a fixed a fixed contract for three months or six months. But I also think I was it was a yeah it was a summer thing, so I was actually starting my masters, so I only had three months between ending my undergraduate and going to do my masters. So I, I was actually I was on my way out. I had to go and continue my studies. <laughs> You're so you got so much direction. Don't you think, Backers, like the idea of yeah. just like doing an internship and then going to a master's? I made some terrible decisions at university and um, I did 
a degree that I wasn't very good at that I found really hard. I was just quite overwhelmed. It was a bad time. So it's always super impressive to hear because you studied both your courses, you know, really help you in your career. They really moved your career forward. Because I happen to know, because um, my sister recommended that I listen to your podcast, I happen to know. Mine? <laughs> yeah. I happen to know from your podcast the decision that you made about uni. Yeah. Tell that story. <laughs> that... <laughs> you decided not to go and do a degree I was, instead. Yeah. You decided I was determined to... not to go to university. So when all of my friends went to uni, I got a job in a dental practice and joined a canoe club. The canoe club. That's what I would, that's what I was after. Not the dental practice. There's no harm in that. There's a, that's an honest day's work. It's the canoe club thing. That was like on the list. Shall I go to, you know, dig, dig a well, start a charity? No. Canoe club. And were you canoeing? That is so sweet. Like, what were you doing at the canoe Although club? Although you didn't you didn't you did engage with it in quite a show pay style way because you wanted to go straight to the advanced level, didn't you? I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Basically, like, I've never canoe before, but I think I'm brilliant. I'm a canoeer. I did. And I can actually really relate to what you were saying about just deciding when you left school and went to uni, you decided nobody knows me here. That's exactly what I did when I got into my boat. <laughs> I've got I've got a kayak, I've got an um a cagoul, I am a canoeer. Yeah. I will and I I push myself to the front of the queue every time we were learning a new a new stroke or a new skill or something I made myself the first to do it. I was determined to be be the best. And I became a coach. I'll have you know. Did you? Wow. I coached beginners. Well, yeah, the jokes I'm on me then. That's fantastic. Coach. <laughs> you know we've got um show page, you know we've got a real work camp coming up. We've got a little um, residential in September. We're all we've I've oh, wow. booked this huge place in the New Forest and we're all going to go and um hang out. First of all, you should come. And I second of all, Buckers, surely there's we've got access to canoes somewhere nearby. Surely. Surely. I would so, be delighted to lead a session. Expedition with, even. With, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? Southampton. Maybe we can canoe to the Isle of Wight. Perfect. I'm just making a note of that. <laughs> and what's the vibe at this camp? Are we going to be sitting around in circles? It's a good question. Meditating. Medieval basket weaving. <laughs> yeah, basket weaving. <laughs> Belly dancing lessons. The, um, the brief is it's um, three, so it's three days when we come together and it's, it's rest and restorative, connecting, networking. I see us, you know, it's in a beautiful place and in a really ancient forest. There's an arbitorium there with these protected trees, which are like the oldest yew trees in the country. So I th think of us like walking and talking, obviously talking about work, because I love to talk about work, but um, yeah, sort of walking, preparing meals together slowly, you know, reading a book under a tree next to someone else and discussing the book and or work or that's 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 the vision. And um real work is doing really well. So real work is subsidizing it. It's um Love it's it. pretty good value. Do I sound I sound a tiny bit like an infomercial now? <laughs> The pacing and the tone of your voice has changed slightly in the last 15 yeah. seconds. I'm not quite sure. It's just <laughs> like... <laughs> that sounds amazing, though. The when So you moved on from there. We haven't even got to the meat and potatoes of your um, expertise, which is um, fashion, the circular economy, because you wouldn't have had any idea. When you were in the blog spot mode... You were like buy, change, acquire, consume, show. And then slowly we see see the adult version of you as understanding the planet and the industry and advising on that stuff. Tell us about that evolution. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I was a big fast fashion consumer when I was younger. I loved clothes and I loved buying them and I loved showing everyone what I'd bought. Um, and, I, and it was quite innocent. I didn't really realize the impact of what I was doing. I don't think many people did back then, you know, like 
five, six years ago, the, the conversation wasn't where it is now. So yes, I was happily shopping and sharing mostly cheap uh, clothing, often made from plastic-based materials, so polyesters. And then I went to go and do my master's and I did my final thesis on a sustainability-focused concept. And the great thing about doing a master's is that you have the opportunity to read read in more depth and in more in a higher volume than you ever could usually do in working life, right? You've got so much time. Your your the only objective is read tons about a certain topic. So I got really into sustainability and just understanding the impact that I was having and understanding just how complex and deep the issue was. It wasn't just about the environment and carbon emissions and water pollution, but there was also a, a huge social element. There was a huge issue with child slavery and with women garment workers and domestic abuse. And there was just so much wrapped up in the issue of fashion that I had no idea about. And I felt so duped, I guess, because I was such a large consumer of fashion and it was such a big part of my identity that I almost my identity was called into question a little bit when I discovered the impact of my hobby and my what, what was my passion. And with all of this information, I kind of decided that whenever you know better, you have to do better. Um, so it was quite a slow process, but I slowly transitioned to try, I slowly transitioned to more a more responsible or conscious way of consuming. Um, that started with buying a lot less, that included buying natural fibers so that they could biodegrade and not contribute to landfill and CO2 emissions. That looked like stopping shopping at certain places. So the fast fashion just had to go because there was no meaningful way for me to justify shopping with those companies. Um, and yeah, generally it looked like me just being, me just thinking before I purchased, right? I think there, there's a behavioral element to the way that we shop, which doesn't include stopping and thinking. <laughs> if you think about the, the way a lot of these e-commerce websites are built, they are optimized to get you to check out as quickly as possible. They don't want you to think about whether you really want it or not. They offer free returns. They offer time-limited discounts. It's all about getting you to check out as quickly as possible. So um, I try to plug out of that behavior and just start to think in a lot more depth about um, what I was buying and if I enjoyed it and if I really was going to love it for five, 10, 15 years down the line. And I wanted to do so in a way that wasn't judgmental. So I'm a very like chill, accepting person. What somebody else is doing is none of my business. Um, and what I struggled with a lot with the sustainability conversation is that it was quite a judgmental one. It was, you had to be perfect or we don't want you in this club at all. And that's just not the way it needs to happen. So, um, as I went on this journey, I tried to share, share, share about it in a way that was casual and understanding and accepting and realistic as opposed to judgmental. And as well, the, the problem with that um, divisive model where you're either um, a good consumer or a bad consumer is that the definition is so difficult in that industry. So, for example, some high street shops say, oh, blah, blah, organic cotton. But organic cotton isn't necessarily a better choice than some other fabrics. Tell us about that. Precisely. So a lot of high street brands focus on materials because it's the easiest thing to do yeah. and it's the easiest thing to communicate. But everybody knows the difference between non-organic and organic. And organic kind of has good cultural connotations but organic cotton isn't always better than non-organic cotton because organic cotton takes a huge amount of water to produce and you don't know what the trade-off is in comparison to normal cotton and also organic cotton doesn't necessarily mean that the people are being treated fairly so with cotton there are hundreds of certifications that um, exist to assess the impact of the production of a material. So it might be looking at how much they're getting paid. It might be looking at the hours they're working, but 
there's no standardization with how the cotton is being certified. So it could be organic cotton, but you don't know whether the people who are producing it are getting paid well or whether the surrounding villages are sufficiently protected from pesticide pollution. You just have no idea. So it's it's a hairy issue. Um, and yeah, it's not as binary or as simple as organic materials versus non-organic materials. For sure. As well as slavery in the supply chain, there's also racism. Like cotton is still picked manually, isn't it? By people's it hands. And it, it's, and it damages your hands. It's a, that's a back-breaking, horrible job with its root, roots in racism in Southern America. Precisely, so, precisely. So there's, there's so, there's, it's so deep, deeply entrenched, all of those things. And it, is, find, it is. If... Um, I know that people will be listening and thinking, it's complicated, but how can I solve it? Is there just one label, like organic and stuff? Because I've asked you this question before. And if they want to get the answer, I know that it's a question you get asked a lot and it's quite a long answer. But very kindly, you gave us that answer on an Instagram live you did for me on Brain Biscuits. And what we might do, Buck, is this link to that. Because um, shopping yeah. over 15-minute sort of like... Um, explanation of like this means that this means that this is better than that and and directs you around because people we want a simple answer don't we people do want to do better but the they are people are rightly bamboozled by marketing terminology it's mm. powerful and it's confusing yeah yeah for sure and i think like there are very small simple things that you can look out for outside of the complicated world of certification so Buying less is always a good thing. Buying secondhand is always a good thing. Buying natural materials over polyester is always a good thing because natural materials like cotton or tensile, they biodegrade. Not shopping with fast fashion is always a good thing. Uh, so there are kind of, um, yeah, I don't want to call them rules, but hard and fast behavioral mm -hmm. changes that you can make that will ensure that you're consuming a little bit better. But you're so right. It's it, it's so silly to put the onus for fixing this on the consumer. It's a systematic issue. Like it's in the hands of the brands and the factories and the government, quite frankly, to um, incentivize companies to do better. Otherwise, they won't. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel bad if you're struggling to make the change. I would just do what you can. And also there's a there's a, a, a privilege caveat to add into that. So I have the yeah. luxury of, you know, I'm sitting here wearing cream cashmere on a weekday. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've, I'm by nature a very sparse shopper. I have a, mi I have a micro wardrobe, but just by choice, that's not because I want to be better, that I happen to be like that. But all of those items, yeah, are sort of life, lifetime expensive things. And if people knew how much they cost, they probably, it's just not realistic for most people to make those really high level decisions, particularly yeah. about kids' clothes, about what they're putting their kids in. I always think that that's the most sort of poignant end of this industry where people um, over here, poor people in the UK dressing their kids in clothes that are made by even poorer kids in the developing world. I just feel like that always just, that feels really bad to me. And yet I don't look at those people and just think you, you need to just buy handmade UK clothes. I think, you know, the companies need to be stopped from producing that stuff they, and they have to do better. There's a big thing going on at the moment, isn't there? There's a big international legal case, um, going around about um, supply chain and whose responsibility it is, um, whereby if it goes through and becomes international law, um, it means, we'll look this up, I'll give a better reference. I realise this isn't a great reference. Um, it means that when big clothing companies buy, buy in from third parties, they are responsible for the working conditions in the third party supplier when it comes into their supply chain. So Buck is if they're buying thread to put on the jeans and the, they can't just buy the thread and not ask any questions about how the thread was made and said, oh, we didn't know. They have to be responsible for where the thread was made and that standards are met in that place. So it's quite, um, I'll, I'll find an, a link to it, but it seems like, you know, there's some people trying to tackle this stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many people working so hard within big, big organizations, within charitable organizations to make this change. I think it's just, it's going to be a, a long road. We... We look to lots of people, actually. I look to you on a lot of this stuff. You know, I like, I really like hearing your views and um, your touch point for me on this subject. But who's your touch point? Who, who, you, you influence me, who influences you? Hmm, for sustainability, right? And yeah, just, yeah, yeah, in this area, who can we follow and plug into? Yeah, yeah. So I love um, Emma Monson. Emma Slade Monson. I think her Instagram just Emma Monson or something. Um, but she influences me and teaches me so much about secondhand clothing, end of life, resale. She's kind of the original, the OG secondhand shopper, I consider her. And she's been around for a while and it's just absolutely amazing. Um, I also just generally love Fashion Revolution organization-wise. Yes, they have such good resources, so digestible. Just they do what they do so so well. I'd probably say those are the two main the two main sources for me. In in this world that you've inhabited, the sort of online world, the influencer world, and then fashion, there's accounts like um, the influencer pay gap and things like that have people coming together and sharing information who over who gets paid what has revealed a racial pay gap in influencers as a black woman is that something that you clocked or you know uh, uh do you, did you did you feel that what well, do you know what i mean did you were you aware yeah, of that yeah. before um, yeah. i i was only aware of this recently but you must yeah. have been aware of that before yeah absolutely i was aware, aware of it before this conversation was really happening i would say back in my more rampant influencer days, I'd often find myself in campaigns with other influencers that were fundamentally five, six, seven X my size. And I'd be a bit confused because I think, I mean, I'm honored and I'm, this is cool, but why are they using me? Like I've only got 15,000 followers, which, you know, comparatively to them wasn't a lot. Um, and I eventually became quite friendly with these individuals and started talking to them and a, so and they were all non-black, right? Most of them were white women. So not only would I realize that the paid disparity between what I was getting paid and what they were getting paid was huge, like orders of magnitude higher than the difference in our follower count or our engagement levels, but also it became really apparent that I was used as a bit of a token. I think back then there weren't many black women who were influencing. Now it's a totally different ball game and, and there's so many black and brown women who are great influencers and getting the campaigns they deserve. But back then there wasn't. Um, and I was essentially the token black women, black woman in a lot of these campaigns back then. Um, so I think, yeah, from quite a young age, I was very aware of not only the fact that I'm being paid less or not being paid fairly, but also I'm kind of occupying an odd role in that maybe I'm not here because my content is cool enough or creative enough or interesting enough, but maybe I'm here to fill a quota so that the brand doesn't get disparaged online. So um, yeah, I, I would definitely say it's something that I've experienced personally and I'm not surprised, right? Like it's, it happens in every industry and the influencer industry is no different to the music industry or the creative industry or the corporate world. There are these racial disparities uh, and, and gender disparities across the board, like across every system, every uh, group of people, these, these issues exist. Um, so yeah, it, it sucks. So interesting show because since black lives matter and the you know events of the last couple of years, and since I met you actually, so, so du during this time period, I've started to understand my own unconscious bias and racism, and like really own it and start on that just at the beginning of that journey of like getting good advice. You know, in real work, we're doing training with the other box, um, Seema CEO of the other box. You know, I have supervision weekly with her about this subject, learning more, and. Um, 
this really interesting thing. In fact, in, in supervision, we talked about this, which is when I hear things like this, when I hear you sit there and say, yeah, I realized quite early on that I was sort of being brought into jobs because um, I was black and I didn't get paid as much as the other people. I want to clutch my pearls. And the question that came to my lips was, oh, how did you feel about that? You know, outrage, right? Yeah. And as Seema pointed out when I talked about this before, that's just another day at the office if you're a black woman, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, truly, truly standard practice. It's sad to say, but I'm, I'm very unfazed by everyday racism. And I think you kind of have to be to stay in good, unless I'm going to crumble under the weight of racism and not live an enjoyable life. Um, you, as a coping mechanism, I can't let it phase me too much. So, yeah, I, I can understand why to you it sounds so outrageous, but to me... Because it's been there, it's but just... I didn't notice it. It's been there all along. But I've just been yeah. going along in my... I've been surfing along on my layers of privilege, my, you know, my white girl privilege, just like and not 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 seeing it and you and my other black women friends have just had to accommodate that and not bother talking about it and now i'm just like oh my god this happened to you it's like yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's been happening <laughs> yeah how do you feel um do you feel your relationships with white women have changed since people like me have started to our consciousness is starting to elevate slightly in this area yeah, um, not really, but I'd say I'm really enjoying the, the dialogue or the awareness. Um, I'd say I probably had, I, I now am more able to have deeper relationships with white people in general. So um, not it's not something that I do consciously, and I don't want to speak for all black people when I say this, but I am great at compartmentalizing my identity so the shopper that i am at work and the shopper that i am in influencer situations and the shopper that i am with my black loud nigerian family are very different <laughs> and what i am feeling myself do and what i have been feeling myself do over the past yeah 12 to 18 months as this conversation has gotten make has gotten more mainstream is blending those identities, right? And bringing my whole self to more of these spaces, which is nice because it's like exhaling, right? Um, and yeah, even when at work now, I'm, I'm much more able to bring my whole self to work. The shop, the influencer shoppe, the work shoppe and the loud raucous family shoppe. <laughs> so um, it, from that perspective, I feel more able to have deeper relationships and more honest relationships with with everyone, right? With the people that people in all spaces. That's a great answer. We've run out of time. I love talking to you. I love talking to you too. This was fun. It was really fun. Thank you so much. And every, I follow your career really avidly. And I have that lovely sense that, um, you know, the, the world is your oyster. It'd be really interesting to see, you know, what you do next. And I, I look forward to supporting you. Thank you, Fleur. That's so lovely. That's the end of this week's episode of The Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how <laughs> and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time. I don't think I, I don't think I remember to say in the intro, I don't think I remember to say to go onto iTunes and rate us. We have got a couple of ratings and reviews this week, but not many. I, I should have said it. It's hard to remember. I'm getting better at it. I know you are. You are. I've noticed the last few episodes, you've been really good at it. And I can see in your face. I know that you find it awkward. Do you know what? I've actually, I was thinking the other day, it might be useful just to have like a little jingle to go on the end. And then you don't have to worry about doing it when we're recording. We just have something that just covers it off. That would be amazing. So 
I did actually uh, make you <gasps> something. Did you? I like yours. I love yours. The, who's the guy who did the piano in that? He's um, he's like a, a concert pianist or yeah, something. He's, he's called incredible. Tom Seals. Yeah, he's called Tom Seals and he is amazing. He's played <gasps> piano all over the world. Have you seen, um, you've made me you've made me one already. Well, yeah, I've made one for you. Yeah, you did. I, do you want yeah. 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 Is it like your one? Um I mean kind of. Great, let's hear. <gasps> Like and subscribe, like and subscribe. Do it, do it now. Like me, like me, subscribe to me. Review me, review me, review me. Rate the podcast or I will be very sad. I won't make another one unless you rate it. I will know that you have. I will notice if you have not rated it. It all seems a little bit thirsty. Is that what the young people say? A bit thirsty? Rate the podcast or I will be very sad. Review me. I, I, I wouldn't say I was begging. Was I begging? Do it, do it now. Like me, like me, subscribe to me. Review me, review me. Like and subscribe. Did you take those words from me saying that to make that? Yeah, just when we were messing about the other day, I thought it was quite fun. Thanks. You sound really modern. Okay. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore, but the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core, then you know who to call. Producer Buckers. She knows just what to do. Producer Buckers. To make your podcast dreams come true She used to work in radio Where she was poorly paleo A dab hand and audio Find Producer Buckers on Instagram At decibel underscore creative Or click the link in the show notes Come on everyone, Producer, Producer Buckers If you want to hire the best Producer Buckers Just put it to the test Producer Buckers Just press record And she does the rest Producer Parker